Cross the Streams Podcast. Cross the Streams Podcast. Kip and Kane. Season 4 is here. New content in all our favorite segments like Listen Up, Hometown Heroes, Useless Full Information, Calling Men In, and many more. The Ion Brothers are back, everybody. Cross the Streams Podcast, Season 4, Dishing on the Drive, kind of our mini version of our pod where typically it's Kane or myself going solo or with a guest, you know, about a 30-minute podcast. Today, we're bringing on my brother-in-law, Josh Erickson, uh, resident NBA fan, fanatic, former professional uh, and national team coach in Costa Rica to talk about The Last Dance, uh, the 10-part uh, documentary on Michael Jordan and the 98 Bulls. Uh, he's been itching to get on here to talk about, you know, one of the hills he wants to die on with Michael Jordan and the Bulls documentary. In the meantime, before we get to that, be sure you check out some of our archive stuff from the last couple of weeks. We've been putting out a lot of stuff, including the 100th episode Megapod. Uh, Kane and I got together and welcomed back a lot of our regular contributors to over the 100 episodes, almost 11 thousand listens uh, that we've been able to do with the podcast so that includes listen ups david gunn useless full information's jack martino calling men in jeff matsushita uh crack the egg with brandon eggert so that's up we also have coming up next week we've got a great segment a master class in parenting with kane and i's parents Cass and ronda ione talking about uh, the 70s in billings montana and being an interracial couple raising multiracial kids it has a coaching balancing coaching parenting expectations it's a lot of content uh, we've been doing lately across the streams uh, and hope you can enjoy it whether it's on the soundcloud whether it's through the apple podcast app however you consume your podcasts uh, we hope cross the streams are regular on your dial up and listen to uh, right now let's get to dishing on the drive the last dance Cross the Strings podcast, Dishing on the Drive, season four. I think it's our first Dishing episode, which, as we mentioned in the intro, is our kind of our our smaller version, especially after the hundredth episode Megapod that went a Simmons Rosillo like two hours and ten minutes. Uh, we wanted to get a Dishing done. My uh, Kip's here today by himself, but I've got a first time guest. Very excited to have him on. It's been too long. I've approached the subject of getting him on this thing many, many times, but we finally snagged him with uh, the the latest on The Last Dance, the best, or the so-called best documentary in the history of the world, maybe just the most watched, because we have nothing else to do, but my brother-in-law, Joshua Erickson, NBA aficionado, uh, longtime professional coach overseas, national team coach in Costa Rica, I mean, we could bore the listeners, Joshua, with our how we our relationship, but I think we should just jump right into this welcome to the pod and start talking about mj i love it uh excited to finally get on the pod and with no sports uh the last five weeks i think basketball fans especially just been uh going sunday night to sunday night watching the last dance so excited to uh to break it all down and hear your takes and thoughts on it i haven't seen the numbers i've only read you know certain people saying the the numbers are off the hook was this must see live for you or with my niece and nephew running around it was hard to see it live and you had to watch it like a day later yeah not must see live i don't i'm I'm with you i don't know what the numbers were but i think for documentaries as far as they go i i think they were as good as any espn documentaries have done from my understanding but it was tape tape the episodes and watch them Sunday night after the kids go to bed. It wasn't so much of, all right, kids, you're on your own for two <laughs> hours. It wasn't like NBA finals game seven, like kids do whatever you we'll want. See, we'll but see it where was, you're at. Yeah. 
Exactly. It was get the kids to bed and then sit down and watch it um, Sunday night. Did you make my sister-in-law watch it or did she go to bed? She was all in. Oh, really? I couldn't get Kelly to watch it. I couldn't get her to dial in. And you know, Lisa, not a huge, you know, basketball NBA fan, but I think the story, and we'll get into this later, I think some of the storytelling and what they went into um, really brought her in. And um, yeah, she watched every episode. That's awesome. Kelly would, I would, you know, the next day I'd kind of do give her a synopsis of where it was at and throw my opinion in. Uh, and I tried to get my kids to watch it, the older two, Lincoln and Leah. Uh, they watched the first two episodes, and then I got the, Dad, this is boring. I can just look up what happened. Okay, right. that's not the point. But that, that's where that landed at their feet. Uh, but we talked before we started. We want to kind of frame it, and we know last dance discussions are dominating everywhere. Uh, but we want to do it in our kind of frame and let Josh give his opinions, and I'll see what tangents I take us off on. But kind of grading it or evaluating it in the lens, four different lenses. Uh, and we'll start with, the, and I think what I was explaining to Josh, I think you can have different grades it does not be if you give a grade in one of these it doesn't mean that has to apply to the other areas that i want to kind of view the documentary in uh but the first one is that like just in terms of pure was this a well done documentary was it informative was there new stuff revealed how did they play with just the storytelling portion of it you know thoughts and espn set such a high bar with 30 for 30 in general, right? I, th- I don't think they ever do a bad one necessarily. Right. But how did it land for you in that, viewing it through that lens, first of all? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I'd say as a documentary first, I think the, the fun part of documentary, sports documentaries, and like you said, 30 for 30 kind of, you know, set the stage for everything that's come since. You know, having 10 episodes is just such an advantage oh, yeah. because there's so much more information. I mean, you could probably, you know, I haven't thought about this much specifically, but you could probably take some of the great 30 for 30s and just say, wow, if we went from one hour to four or five, how much more detail could we put in? Mm. How much more, you know, not that they're characters, but character, personal development, and their stories could we put in? So that part of it, just the fact that they had the green light to do 10 episodes, mm-hmm. all of the footage that they had gathered, um, and then also just allowed them to pull so many people in yeah. to do the interview. And so I just think that being able to have that long of a runway of 10 episodes to me made it, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it was the best sports documentary I've ever watched, but I would put it up there just because it was so informative mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and being able to have that much material. And, um, you know, as a huge basketball fan and, and, you know, an NBA fan, I can't say there was a lot of things that were brand new. Yeah. Um, but there was enough, you know, new stuff you never heard or footage you hadn't seen, and then just being able to relive it and get people's perspective of what happened then in real time. Yeah, I thought was just phenomenal. Yeah, no, I totally. I think the the stuff where they could dive into Michael and the family or Scottie Pippen's back. I think some of that was new. You know, like you mentioned, I felt like a lot of the basketball I could recollect. Like, oh, I even I know this game. You know, I remember where I was for this game. That's probably part of the power and allure of it, too, because it could kind of transport some of us back to that age and when we were watching it. Right. Uh, I, 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 I can't get over it. It's, it's an astounding feat that they – have they sat on all this? Like, why now? You know what I mean? Is it specifically because it's 
what is it, 22 years? So it's not like a 20th anniversary. Sitting on this is crazy that they were able to. It is. Well, and the, the story goes that they had all this footage and that Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA now, at the time of the 97-98 season, the quote-unquote last dance season, he was in charge of NBA entertainment, and he was the one that pitched this to the Bulls organization, and ultimately, with Michael being Michael, Michael had to sign off on it on... We want to have cameras with you, with the team all season. And Michael was reluctant, and they basically got him to sign off on it by telling him that he would have final say on whether it would ever be released and how it would be released. I didn't. Okay, I didn't know that part. Wow. So it sat there, and so they basically pitched him and said, "If you never want, like the worst case scenario, what they told him in '97 was, is that." We film this, and then it's just the greatest um, secret f- tapes that ever exist in sports and basketball. And he never, you know, they tried to convince him to launch launch it a couple different times, and he never agreed. And the story that I heard, I think it might have been on a Simmons podcast, was that they got him to agree to do it. In 2016, so four years ago, it kind of took to get it from then to the finish line. And as the story goes from I heard, the day he committed to doing it was the day of the parade of the Cleveland Cavaliers (laughs) after they beat the Warriors. So that's what speculated all kinds of, well, Michael felt footsteps, footsteps coming from LeBron. And now it's time to drop the hammer with the documentary to remind people who Michael Jordan was and is. That's the story that, you know, again, all of this stuff, as we will talk about, is through somebody's lens. And so that is the story that 2016 is when he agreed to do it. That is amazing. I'm glad you had that that piece of like background info because I hadn't heard that. I was sh- I was just it was always funny to me or very. I can't imagine being the the cameraman in all those scenes that got stopped by by Gus in in the security, and then this camera crew that had access just kept walking with him in all those scenes where they got cut off and like what the hell? What about Tim and Joe over here? They're going everywhere Michael is. It was insane. I, I thought they did a really good job. It was a unique way. I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure it's happened before, but I thought the flipping between the 97, 98 season and then going back to 84 and then coming back and then going back to 90 was a, was a nice trick. You know, I think it kept it yeah. interesting. It, it did. And I think, you know, I'm sure that opinions on that probably vary if you weren't already familiar with each year just from a big picture right. of knowing who won the title that year, what were the big stories of that year. I imagine some people it was a little bit confusing and they didn't love it, and I read some of those reviews. But I think for the diehard basketball fan, even though you and I may not be able to remember all the details of 92, yeah. we could have probably remembered, okay, you know, the Bulls played the Blazers in the finals and they had a tough series with the Knicks. And so the going back and forth, I personally enjoyed. The other thing they did that I don't remember another seeing in another sports documentary or any documentary at all. I'm sure it's happened, but I personally hadn't seen it. The iPad stuff, I yeah. thought was Or were they brilliant. handed it to him mid-interview? Showing, yeah. yeah, getting reactions from him in real time of, hey, this is what 
you know, Isaiah said, which, you know, was kind of a big moment in right. the documentary, or this is what Dennis said, Rodman said about, you know, what happened in 96, and then being able to get his reaction um, and all the memes that are now coming out of it. But it was, it was very raw, and I think that, um, you know, the thing with any documentary is you have to, you know, make sure and put it in perspective. Whose lens are we seeing right. history through? Which right. this was Michael Jordan's lens. But what was fun was to get raw emotion and reactions from him in those. And yeah. I would imagine there was probably some pretty classic and great reactions that weren't included. <laughs> um, but I thought that was from a an artistic perspective and the documentary side, the director or producer. I'd never seen that, and I thought it was awesome. Oh, I totally agree. I found myself constantly... I was always anticipating and waiting for the next captioned scene because then I knew it was like a behind the scenes one. You know, not that the interviews right. were bad. Michael's interviews were always great. But, you know, sometimes the interviews, you're like, you get cliche answer or, it, you know, Grover's not going to say something negative about Michael. But the right. caption behind the scenes stuff, I could watch that for hours. Yeah, like, and there were just little ones that maybe even were five seconds or ten seconds, but were amazing. Like in episode, was it nine or ten, the last Sunday, the interaction between Michael Jordan and Larry Bird yes. after their Fuck series ended. Yeah. It, I mean, it was like, wait, what What did they just say? It, it just, those little things, those were the, the kind of go behind the scenes that as a casual NBA fan, you would never get or see that. Yeah. And I think that, like you said, those little things that they had to caption because they were so quick or it was so grainy the footage it just added so much i think realness to the documentary it was great what about and what i I think we both agree that as purely a documentary piece it was unbelievable right we give it high marks just on that in that lens i was i did not know and this is sometimes documentaries i graded on do i come out of it with new information and I did not know that when you leave those podiums, I don't know if it's the same now in the NBA, they'd leave those pressers and the vanquished are always sitting there waiting for him. You know, like he walks out and Reggie Miller's next and they're right there and they have to talk. Or he walks right. out and Carl Malone's got his t-shirt tucked into his jeans and he's waiting. <laughs> you know? Stocked, yeah, yeah. Malone were sitting there. Yeah, and, and Michael, I think it was the George Carl story where George Carl didn't speak to him in the restaurant and Michael obviously got furious. But then you watch Michael, and he actually did talk to these guys. It's probably easier after he beats them all. But right. George uh, Carl Malone on the bus afterwards, like that was pretty. Uh, that takes a big human. Now I know Carl Malone. Yeah, it's funny you bring up that Malone thing. That was one of the kind of the like pause the, the documentaries you're watching. It was, it was like, can you believe that he did that? Can you imagine yeah. a player today going on the bus of another team and and congratulating right? him? And, you know what's interesting is if you if you evaluate or judge that through the the narrative the documentary was jamming down our throats which is like you have to be cutthroat in right. Michael Jordan that's the only way you can look at that as like oh well that's why Carl exactly oh see weakness. keep that exact but that's thought such I a love yeah false, a false narrative and I thought like wow that's amazing like, yeah good for Carl Malone for sure. going on there and doing that. Uh, but you're right, those those little things like the press conference of Michael coming out and saying hi to Carl and Stockton or yeah. Reggie, I can't imagine it's still 
that, you know, yeah. works like that today, but um, with all of the media and, and how it's all set up. But I think similar to that was some of the, you know, you see the media chasing after Rodman in the lower level of the United Center when he's trying to get out of there without, you know, just the fact they couldn't close off the parts of the building. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it just kind of felt like pandemonium a little bit. And I just, again, I'm not involved in it. I'm not in the know. I can't imagine it's done that like that now. I feel like security yes. is, is treated so differently in 2020 than it was in 98. Um, but it was great to see that old foot, old footage of everything. Oh, phenomenal. We're going to come back, take our first break. Uh, we got my brother-in-law, Josh Erickson, talking The Last Dance. We'll be right back. Cross the Streams podcast is available now via SoundCloud or the Apple Podcast app. And be sure to follow us across our social media platforms on Instagram at CTS Podcast, on Twitter and Facebook at Cross the underscore stream. All right, we're back uh, talking last dance. Josh, let's go to this, viewing it through these glasses now as a vehicle like you mentioned it in our first segment, for people maybe that were unfamiliar and or forgotten about Michael Jordan. And we talked about the timing coinciding with LeBron winning that title uh, for the Cavs and then really taking a step to where people like me are promoting the LeBron's better than MJ and this being a vehicle for a lot of people. And it obviously Jordan's competitive, as we saw. Is this the end-all, be-all of the discussion that a lot of people are portraying? Well, just watch The Last Dance, and that seals the deal. I, I don't disagree at all that it absolutely shows MJ as who he was, right? I, I think that part, well, even that I have to maybe disagree with. It's a great promotional tool for MJ. I think it did a great job showing enough of his competitive side that it only seems to be forward-pushing for teammates and not just being an ass. Uh, but go ahead, right. you talk. How is this vehicle for no, MJ? I mean, that's you hit the nail on the head. The, I think the question people are asking now is: Was that a documentary or was that an MJ propaganda piece? Yeah. <laughs> you sent it to the you academy. Know? Yeah, right. And but I think there's a, a bigger. It raises some bigger questions of. I think when we when we think of a documentary, maybe historically, sports or otherwise, you think of what I love about documentaries and is that you're going to get just into all of the dirt, all of the details. You're going to know everything. And I think that's what made some of the 3030s. you know, you just really learn stuff you didn't know. And maybe you're getting a, a neutral, you know, analysis of mm-hmm. something. This was not that. Right. So I don't think that it makes it, I still think it was great for what it was, but um, again, not to, you know, make this isn't about like criticizing Michael Jordan, who I you know think is the best NBA yeah. player of all time personally. But it's like if you were doing a ten-part documentary of Michael Jordan, everything, you know, like do you interview his his ex-wife? Ah, I mean, you, big omission you know, in the series. Big omission stuff that didn't come in there, right? Um, and I agree with you know, and his kid, his kids had a very. Um, episode 10 brief yeah yep a very brief cameo um they touched on the gambling but i think to your point you just made i think they touched on it at such a surface level it was just to check a box yeah 
so nobody could say to them, oh, you didn't even talk about the gambling rumors from 93. They didn't really go go down it. There's a whole lot more to the story than they shared in the documentary. Um, but again, you know, Michael Jordan had final say in this documentary. Mm-hmm. And even the, you know, before it came out, I didn't know that. And everybody was saying, oh, Michael um, is going to look terrible after this documentary comes out. And I was thinking, wow, this is going to be great. We're getting the real look at everything about him as a player off the court. And again, to your point, it's just like they gave us enough yeah. to, to kind of carry the narrative they wanted to share, like with the the competitive stuff in practice. Yeah. You know, like we got a little bit of trash talk. We got a little bit of that, but it's not like we really got anything no, that fell uh-huh. out of like that you hadn't heard in any right, practice at right. any level of all time. Yep. And that's where it just kind of kills me of like the reactions of people on, you know, the, the Twitter sphere of basketball people like, Oh, like practices, look at how competitive he was. Didn't take anything. <laughs> it's like, did, did we really see that? Yes. Agreed. Um, agreed. And then, you know, I think it's interesting to now see as we're talking about this with it ending on Sunday and what came out today, um, you know, Tom Brady's now doing a nine-part documentary oh, next year on ESPN sake. that is executive produced by Tom Brady. Um, it's a new age uh-huh. of, I think, athlete, and, you know, they're they're now so involved in their image, and a lot of them, LeBron, other NBA players, Kevin Durant, they're so involved in media. Um, and it's just different than maybe older documentaries, I think, where it was a neutral person that mm-hmm. was coming in interviewing people. You know, ultimately, the Michael Jordan one, and I'm sure what Tom Brady is going to be sharing in his that comes out next year, it's their story through their lens. Um, and so, you know, I again, it was it was great, but I do think that, you know, there's fair criticism that can come of, all right, some things were, you know, not included that would have given more perspective on, on Michael. Right. I was... I would on the basketball side of it for him. I, I don't think there was any ever for me like, oh, I th- I misremembered Michael Jordan. He wasn't as good. No, I mean they 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 obviously showed ways he carried that team. I was dumbfounded by the scores. 86 79. Right. 90 and I'm not trying to make a judgment on um the like a good bad positive negative of those scores, but the difference is stark, you know, between the eras. In the time, and it just makes the comparisons even that much harder. I mean, I can't imagine the possessions, the number of shots those games were having. I mean, I know what Simmons and Rosillo and some other people have given out that just the drastic amount, the pace was so different. But they're talking, we're talking game seven major games in the low 80s. Like, that's the first half sometimes of Lillard and Curry are playing. You know, that's the first half. It's, it's, a, diff- it's a different sport. It yeah. really is. And it only in only 20, you know, 20 to 25 years. Yeah, watching those games, and I think, you know, a bunch of people have said it, but it's true. Just the spacing oh, it's of all bunched in, right? And it just, it's just, it's crazy. And I think... You know, the whole narrative that, um, you know, oh, NBA guys today are soft and couldn't have played in that because it was so physical, like, I think is just a, a pretty crazy narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, the biggest difference is just really more on spacing stuff. Yep. Of like, you know, yeah, it was easier for guys to get hit in the 90s and 80s going to the basket because there were six other <laughs> yes. bodies from there to the rim. Because you got Rodman Whereas, in the short corner and, no, and what are we guarding him over there for? 
Oh, don't even get me going on the last shot from the 98 on oh. uh, the defense, the defensive, um, like what right? they did on that. I mean, it just was like baffling, yes. um, to see, you know, like that last play and the famous MJ shot, Scotty Pippen couldn't move. Dennis Rodman was a non-factor and was they're not sending a, coach? Yeah. A, we're not sending a, you know, there's no double. There's no, there's nothing. It was just, right? it was a different game. Yeah. It really was. Um, but yeah, you're right. That was, that was really interesting to see just the scores and the style of play. And, um, you know, there've been some stuff that came out. I think I saw it on synergy today of the possessions that ended in one-on-one, um, at that time versus now, which yeah. is, you know, more pick and roll based and, and as much as people, you know, criticize the Rockets for how they play, there's just still a lot of motion in most teams and moving the ball and spacing and Latin in the nineties, it was just get the ball to somebody in the post right? and like, let them go one-on-one. Oh, and um, I was, it, uh, the end of the, of the episode 10 where he, I was, I love the quote where he talked about, I really in 98 was more me using my mind, right? Something like right. that extent. But I'm not sure they showed that or he talked about it until then. Like, I was interested, but that's probably because you and I are basketball coaches and nerds. Like, I feel like Kobe in detail and the other stuff would explain this better. The parts he thought about, right? For I'm when you do this, then I'm going to counter. They didn't let Michael or Michael didn't approve going into what he meant by that. Because all he said was, right. well, Scotty was hurt, so I scored more. Well, that's that's not exactly new General Patton you know, maneuvering around the enemy. You know what I mean? So I was, I, that part, I, I think they could have done more because he really did transform. I agree with him. He moved yeah, into that short post that was, up, that, right? Yeah, that was a, that's a great point. I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, you know, for a documentary that was 10 hours, we didn't really get a whole lot of basketball no. X's and O's. Right. Um, it was more, you know, narratives and it was all great. Um, but we didn't get any of that because that would have been a really interesting part of it. Cause you know, as much as we're talking about changes that have happened from the late nineties to today, you know, even in Michael's career, there were changes from 85 to 98 and, and him changing as a player as his athletic ability change after coming back from baseball. I would have loved to have had some of that, um, because again, you're right. hundred percent. He just kind of gave, you know, very, um, you know, very surface level comments on that yeah. stuff. Do you know that I found out and you might've already saw it, that all the interviews with him, those aren't his houses. I did not know that. Yeah, they're not his houses. Like that's a level of fame that like there's five people ever. That's like, no, you can't show the house. That's bad. If you show the house, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was dumb. Like, do you think Kobe... Or I don't think LeBron either. Do you think those guys would be filmed with tequila and a cigar? Every every I, interview? And I'm not judging it. I'm just saying that's like an MJ swag thing. That's just how he rolls. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, LeBron's kind of become the, the wine aficionado. Oh, that, was he in the shop years. drinking wine? I mean, he yeah. showed up to a game when he was injured with a glass of wine. What um, about the Miller Lights? Him and Pippen had it damn near seemed every game postgame. Yeah, I mean, seeing guys <laughs> after the game and then walking through the hallways drinking a beer—it's a can. Uh, it was it was a different a can. I mean, it was a different era. I those little things were were awesome to see. So I think that's a nice segue for us. Well, let's wrap. I I don't think it changed my mind. I mean, I, uh, Jordan is one B to me, in in LeBron has surpassed him, but that doesn't mean the documentary was going to change me either way. I think that's kind of it, it. It was a vehicle for Michael for sure. 
But 100%. I don't think that argument's ever... I don't think... I would pay money for somebody to say, I can tell you the time and place where somebody changed my mind in Michael versus LeBron. You know? I don't yeah. think it's going to happen. Right. If, and if I would say if, you're, if your opinion on that changed because of the documentary, then I think that you're... A sucker? You're... Yeah. Thank you. You said it for me. <laughs> it's all right. We're going to expletive rate of podcast. <laughs> we're all kind of products of the moment yeah. um and so and it was 10 episodes and so there's a lot coming at so like i get that part but if you thought that you know lebron was better before um and this changed it then you know i don't i don't think that your opinion hold much holds much weight i mean my thought on the two of them and again it's amazing that we're even talking about lebron and this but the whole world was every sunday night yeah. because you know, people have their narratives, and it's like, all right, if they're doing something about Michael, now we have to bring up LeBron and Skip Bayless, world of sports. Um, but my thing with it just is like, you can't go wrong on either one right. who's the best. Yeah. If, um, if you think that the difference is that great between either of them, that it's not even a hard question, that's where I'm like, okay, well, gotcha. you have some kind of a bias there. Yeah. You know, yep. right? Because it's just, it is that close. Yep. Um, but that's another story for Do another you, day, probably. When moving on to the pure entertainment lens, like, first of all, I think the music was amazing. Just the intro music and the outro music. How, however they decided, like, I was gripped going in. And then the outro, I was like, I'm so glad I DVR'd this. Because there's no way I could wait if I was waiting. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I was struck first, and this seems a little random, but... I was really felt Kobe's death again, whether that was episode six or seven, when he was in it. And I was like, because watching this remind, like, I forgot how much Kobe moved, talked, not just played, like, even the two of them walking is the yep. exact same human being. And I think Kobe not passing away would have maybe been, had a little bit more part in this or more commentary on it. And I, I think we got robbed of that, obviously amongst all the other parts of that tragedy. 100%. Yeah, I mean, obviously he made a brief cameo in the documentary, but, you know, you look at them and everything they say, every interview, the way they answer questions, the way they move on the basketball court, um, the way they frame who they are to the media. I mean, it is just big brother, little brother. Oh, my brother. God, it's, amazing. Um, it's unbelievable. It is. So, yeah, it's... That was kind of an emotional part of it for sure. And I did think there was some other stuff they pulled in that, you know, made it where it wasn't just, you know, the basketball and the team. And yeah. I thought the Steve Kerr, uh, oh, Michael Jordan. One of the best parts. I was, was disappointed when, because I love the storytelling of Kerr, right? Uh, yeah. And his dad. I thought that part. But I was so, I don't want to say mad, but maybe disappointed when they asked him, did you two bond and talk over that? No. Uh-uh. You know, and I was like, oh, well, I, think, I thought the, you know, the perfect Hollywood ending was going to be like, yeah, we hugged and cried because both of our right. fathers were murdered. You know, I, 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 it's that's such a great point to bring up. I, I heard a podcast that Steve Kerr was on at the start of this. I think it might have been on Zach Lowe's podcast from ESPN. And he was talking about just the level of fame that Michael had and how it was impossible for him to really be engaged as a teammate like anybody else. Mm. And the documentary showed that a little bit of like yeah. when they're in the locker room, Michael was in his own space right. with the security guards. And Kerr talked about that, how Michael was closer with his security guards than anybody else on the team. Um, and it wasn't a knock on him, a criticism. Right. It's just he's living in a different world. And it, it the Steve Kerr thing, a tiny little tidbit, tidbit that I thought was, was, 
really hilarious was when they talked about the fight when Michael punched him in practice and Michael, you know, Phil came and talked to him in the locker room after he got kicked out of practice. And Michael said that he then um, asked somebody to get him Steve Kerr's phone number so he could call and apologize. And he didn't, he didn't have, he Steve didn't have it. Number. That's crazy. Yes, that's a great point. I didn't even think of that. But that, it, it was like, I yeah. remember hearing that. And now again, this is back in the day when everybody has cell phone and all of those things. But like, yeah. This is his teammate for four years, right. and like he doesn't even know how to get a hold of him. Yeah, um, it's yeah. just like imagine, imagine that you know today. Um, so yeah. I thought that was that was interesting. But yeah, the, what, as you said, the Steve Kerr Michael thing. Like when they asked about, how, did you guys bond about it all? You know, I think it speaks to the just Michael's kind of you know status and just this crazy world he lived in where he's larger than life and he just was kind of on his own in that in that world do we do we know could you say with confidence based on this that him and scotty pippen are friends are they friends is it hard because i didn't i've read question right i've read that pippen and horace grant especially are very upset with the documentary I didn't think it shit on Pippin. I don't think it was awful for him, but it wasn't exact. They had the one was episode two or three, maybe that had a little bit more Scotty focus of his life, right? Um, but it wasn't like aside from the golf scene where he, he him is he's going to go golfing with Michael. When were they hanging out? They probably they weren't. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think we can answer it definitively. I think that um, there's probably a case to be made that they aren't you know, close friends, they were co-workers. Um, I, you know, in terms of how Scotty was portrayed, you know, I do think that they focus more on some of the newsworthy challenges Scotty went through. Mm -hmm. I mean, the contract, the not going back into the game against the Knicks when they didn't call the play for him. And they glossed over some of Scotty's greatness. Um, and you know, I think, just the easy thing that I felt like didn't get enough attention was, you know, that first retirement when Michael left. And, you know, I think in 92, 93, when they won the first of the three peats, I think the Bulls had won maybe like 57 games or something like that in the regular season. And then the next year they won 55 without yeah, Michael yeah. and Scotty finished third in MVP. Like yeah. that to me sounds important, yes, right? Yes. Like you, you know, Michael was great. Michael was Michael. Michael left. Scotty became one of the best players in the league, and the team didn't miss a beat in the regular season. Obviously, in the playoffs, it was different, and they lost, but they still had a great run. I just think that Scotty's greatness was was minimized a little bit. I I completely agree. I think one that makes me think just randomly of if you remember, well, I'm sure you do. When the Lakers, so Shaq and Kobe beat Portland in game four here to go up 3-1 in that Western Finals. Do you remember yeah, Pippen, remember. The, on, the rage of Pippen in the hallway they had to film? Throwing the towels. And obviously, I'm sure it was in the moment, but part of it was probably Scotty was like, I'm going to win one without him. like Because if the Blazers beat the Lakers, they'll beat the Pacers. They would have beat the Pacers, not, no question. 100%. And I wonder if now watching this, I wonder how much because like they even in the Magic series, the Lakers series, Scotty's the one that locked up Magic. It wasn't Jordan. Right. Scotty did it. You know, the whole damn series. Uh, you, would, I, I, you would think it had to have been something that would have meant a lot to him. Yeah. Uh, you know, because, 
you know, again, his his career is framed as the best sidekick or one of the best sidekicks of all time. And, you know, any real basketball fan can acknowledge that, like, that's not a knock. That's still, he's one of the greatest players that have played. But it's still, you know, everybody's competitive. Everybody has, like, I'm remembered as a sidekick. And if he could have gotten one, you know, without him and got me, I don't think you can come any closer than he did in, 2000 with uh, the Blazers losing to the Lakers. But, yeah, I mean, it felt like it would have meant a lot to him because, um, you know, and it also considering the last one that they won in 98, you know, he really wasn't even physically able to play in games five and six, but he still toughed it out. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting point. You know what I would also pay? I'd pay top dollar to get us a table, and Scottie Pippen's coming. We paid our mortgage and our children's college tuition. For him to come and break down for us, Kobe versus Michael. The who knows him better? You know what I'm saying? Like Scotty having gone up. Oh man, I would pay a lot of money. Or Phil, maybe Phil too with that. But I, Phil, what'd you think of Phil Jackson in this? Where, where, where are we at with Phil? Because I, yeah. some of his, I don't. Maybe the Knicks thing is such a blow. But Phil is no doubt, if not the best, second greatest coach of all time. He coached two of the greatest teams ever. But some of his stuff just comes across to me as so smug, and I just want to hit him right in the mouth. And I've always, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, I, it's, it's a great question. I mean, Phil, for one, I on a personal note, it felt like since we'd last seen him with the Knicks and kind of into the public sphere, felt like he aged a lot. Yes, um, yes. You know, he's just been kind of hanging out in your old stomping grounds in Montana. And, right. And who knows what he's doing out there, but he just kind of seemed a little frail. I was I kind agree. of sad seeing him. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, look, Phil – Everybody changes after you win. Right. I mean, that's just a fact that everybody, you know, it's, it's undeniable. Um, you know, even the whole Zen master stuff that Phil became famous for. I love seeing early um, Bulls tapes and games and highlights of when Phil was first a head coach. He wasn't just sitting there. No, he was the barking at everybody. Yeah. He's up, moving. I mean, it just, he kind of evolved into a little bit of a caricature of what, you know, the message and the narrative was, which right. was Zen Master. Um, so I feel like, you know, and I don't know if we talked about this before, but I did. There's a little bit of a narrative that I just kind of felt like was flimsy, and that was the, probably my biggest knock on it was the Doug Collins to Phil transition Uh um didn't that seem like he snaked him a little bit it definitely seems like the story is that he got snaked a little bit and what's interesting about it is so what collins's last year was 88 89 that's the scotty pippen game seven game seven they lose in the conference finals to in game seven to what is really like an all-time underrated team our buddy david adelman would argue the greatest team ever in the pistons and we'd both be mad about it i mean from 86 (laughs) to 90 like unbelievable right so they lose to them and you know and have a great season they fired their coach after making it to game seven of the conference finals Phil comes in, and in one of those episodes, the whole narrative was on Phil came in, and he changed uh, Doug Collins' offense, which was all Michael Jordan heavy, and they did the equal opportunity triangle offense. And they made this big deal about Michael sacrificed so much, and Phil got to buy in. 
and it just didn't sit right with me. So that night after that episode, I got on basketball. Oh, you went down a rabbit hole? I did. From so 89, 88-89, Doug Collins last year to 89-90, Phil's first year, Michael's shot attempts per game went up. Get the fuck out of here. So this narrative now within that there can still be like, well, maybe, you know, there was still more ball movement via the triangle and then Michael just still took the same amount of shots. That could very well be a case. I don't have that, you know, statistical breakdown of, you know, like passes per possession and all of that stuff. But Michael's shot attempts went up. Um, and so that to me was just like, okay, here's another, you know, narrative of like Michael became this equal opportunity triangle. He right. sacrificed so much. It's like, well, the numbers just really don't back that up. Um, so I always felt like, and I feel like to this day that the whole triangle thing of Phil uh-huh. was wildly overrated. Yeah. It's um, not like in LA, the shots were going to Shaq and Kobe. It's not like Brian Shaw was getting 14 shots a game and equal opportunity. Exactly right. You know? Yeah. So here it is. Michael in 88, 89 took 22.2 field goal attempts a game in 89, 90, he took 24. it just doesn't really add up that's so Um, good i'm glad you said that but that's a great segue because i want to dive in from there on the similar i I don't it's not bashing either i think it's more like can people pump their brakes a little bit in the last lens as this is a thing to share with your team if you're a coach or your son if you're a dad or yourself if you're a player Because all you got to do, son, is follow the Michael Jordan last dance script to championships. And I really, and this is maybe because I haven't won a fucking championship. So I will throw that out there. I get it. Kip, maybe you win one before you criticize. But I don't think it's, it's something you should use as a blueprint anywhere. I think you should enjoy it as entertainment. And you can be in awe of Michael Jordan's greatness. I think that's fine. I don't think there's maybe two humans ever that could be what this was and win at this level. I just don't think it's a copyable. I don't want my players walking around calling each other bitches and hoes and not letting each other eat after losses. I just don't want to exist in that environment. Right. You know, I'm I'm with you. I, I think that my personal opinion is that I think leadership and with talking specifically about basketball team, the only way it's effective and works is if it's, genuine and based off of who you are whether it's a coach or who you are like your personality as a player so in that respect michael's i mean clearly it was genuine it was who he is right this competitive maniac and it worked um it seems like it worked um you know because they got the results i also think it's important to recognize that without having as steve kerr and other teammates put it without having the the other leadership style of Scotty, right. maybe it doesn't work. Right. Um, and so it was a combination. Um, and so, yeah, I'm 100% with you. This idea of like, I hope all my players watch this. If everybody on your team took that approach, you would have a disaster. Oh, my God. I took the one part I did share, and I shared it with my captains and a couple of my younger guards who I'm trying to help them find their voice as leaders was where he got emotional and Michael said the only th- the thing they have to say is Michael Jordan never asked me to do something I he didn't fucking do. That right. I respect 100%. I think that's universally something anyone in any industry can apply. Right? 
And I think it goes, and not to bring it back to, I don't, okay, I'm not going to go the LeBron route again. Well, but I will. The, the Michael thing on this is, you know, this is also going back to my basketball reference deep dive. One of the things, and Bill Russell, Bill Russell, I remember, had a quote about this that always stuck with me about part of Michael's greatness was doing it every night. Mm. Um, and, you know, when I went on basketball reference, the first thing that jumped out at me about Michael was the number of games he played every season. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was like 86, 87. He went 82. Next year, 82. 81, 82, 80, 80, 78. The guy would not take nights off. And we all know that when you have that long right. of a season, there's nights you probably shouldn't play. Right, but he did anyways, and it sounds like from the documentary and what people said that he was like that in practice uh, too. Yeah, and he was so competitive, and so I think you know again he could take that um, you know kind of negative leadership strategy of um, pushing guys and bullying them a little bit because he was always backing up like I'm going to outwork everybody, I'm going to play regardless, yeah. and. I think that it worked for him that way. Um, I don't, you know, other people adopting it. You know, I think people say that Kobe had something similar. Um, But I also, I don't completely buy that either because I think during the Lakers' first three-peat, the thought that Kobe had a bigger voice on that team than Shaq, I think is is crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and so this idea that Kobe was you know, threatening Shaq and getting hit. I mean, that was Shaq's, Shaq's voice, Shaq's right. team. Maybe later in the second championship run they had with Pau. Um, but, you know, I just, and again, Kobe was, a, a, you know, notorious for being the hardest worker and a lunatic. Yeah. I don't think that, you know, being the best player and the hardest worker, maybe you can take that approach and it works. But for just everybody to adopt this is like, all right, the Michael Jordan leadership. Right. Right. Um, Academy. I don't think that that's a good. Well, yeah, a good don't thing you think for the the Scotty Burrell is the best example I can hold up for people? Like, guys, you realize Scotty Burrell didn't do shit in the NBA. This didn't. He didn't turn into you know an all star because Michael rode his ass. And how this made me just clicked in my brain when you were talking about the Steve Kerr phone number thing. And Michael said a lot in his interviews. Well, I knew my I knew which one of my guys needed to be pushed. How he right. don't know them. He doesn't. I think when you exist at that level of greatness, you can just paint everybody else with a broad brush of not as good as me, and then it right. is okay. Then you do go with you know you. But when you're when you're not the greatest in the world in the history of the world at your craft, you can't broad paintbrush everyone else's lesser. So I don't think this is a, a sustainable model for other people. Um, I would love to hear Phil Jackson's stories about michael the way he you know just trashed kobe after the first run with the lakers i'm sure he has similar like listen to this shit i had to deal with with this crazy person you would think he has to right uh, and i do think in the lebron argument i'm gonna be honest with you i am not an nba caliber player never was but i would rather play with him it appears to me and that might be once again why lebron people will say well that's why he's lost seven finals or <laughs> or he wasn't playing the jazz 
You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. I yeah. mean, just this idea of leadership, I love it. It feels like a separate pod. It does. It I does. mean, I think you can criticize Michael for some things. And obviously, again, it's easy for us to criticize on limited information and watching right. videos, all that. But, you know, I would say that LeBron, the, the criticism that I personally, I'm a huge LeBron guy. I think the people that criticize him for his finals record are lunatics. Um, but I do think that if you're just being neutral and analyzing and kind of what we're doing here, LeBron does more of passive aggressive criticism uh, to his true. teammates. That's true. And, you know, I also, there's times when I kind of see how LeBron is and I'm like, gosh like that that doesn't and gotcha, again there's yeah. an element of this of just human and nobody's a perfect leader um so michael could probably be criticized for the bowling style of leadership um it worked um obviously it worked a lot of the time but i'm sure you know there's also the part of this of like you know when you win you can paint whatever you did as a successful strategy and right. that's you know that's just bogus no that, that's um, true and i do you think but, michael jordan purpose behind or when he decided to sign off like you you informed us before i don't think he signed off with the intention of putting out a leadership bullet point list i think it was a celebration of it you could say himself but also that run i think that was the goal and people right. framing it as a living breathing leadership constitution are insane no, they're crazy percent right and that's people they already had a narrative and then they took this to to give the evidence for it because the other thing we talked about before of you know giving a, a clear picture of michael and things that weren't included it's interesting they didn't talk about the wizards no. at all. <laughs> uh, and yep, you're you know, right. he, used the, he used the same leadership style there and so you know it, it just kind of lends itself to the point that yeah, the leadership style worked because as Jeff Van Gundy, I've heard him say many times, like, oh, you know, Phil wrote all these books about coaching and Zen and this and that. It's like Phil had Michael Jordan and they were the best team in the league. Right. Like, great. That's Michael a great point. Michael could do the leadership stuff because Michael was the best player without a doubt in the NBA. It was unbelievable. And the Wizards, um, you know, we can't say, let's use Kwame Brown as an example. Well, we Rip Hamilton. Say, Rip Hamilton yeah. was much better in Detroit than he was with Michael Jordan. Right, and we can't say that Kwame wouldn't, maybe he would have had a better career if it started elsewhere. Nobody knows that. He had his own issues. But you can definitely say without a doubt that Michael really hurt his development by the way he treated him. Yeah. Um, and so his leadership style, when he now wasn't the best player and didn't wasn't on the best team, I mean, nobody wants to talk about, was that a good leadership style for the Wizards? Well, um, where was Ron Harper in this interview, in the interview series? All I remember from Harper was him and Jordan arguing in the practice. Yeah, Where was Harper? Only, Where was yeah. Luke Longley in these? Yeah, the only Harper interview I remember was actually him talking about when he played for the Cavaliers. Oh, and yes. MJ hit the That's shot right. Over Elo. And he wanted to guard him. That's right. But I don't, you're right. I don't remember, you know, and again, they, and I know that was something that came out after the first few episodes was Kukoc was upset about how he was being portrayed and you know he didn't get a lot of screen time um you know they're gonna go with and steve Kerr admitted this like hey i'm getting a lot of screen time and promotions this and that not because of my role on the bull sense because i'm the coach of the warriors right right right, um, right you know and so they're they have to put the people in that people are going to recognize because the casual fan be like who the heck is luke longley yeah where I think, and I think the glaring omission, and for me and for you and I both, you know, being fathers and husbands and 
that part of it was disappointing, but I don't think it's required. If you are a private person, you don't. I don't think your family is required to be in the, the documentary. But there was the moment with the kids in Barcelona. And then there was the Juanita was in it at the first retirement press conference, but that's it. And then the kids in episode 10 saying, we didn't get to go to Utah. Done. End of discussion. Like right. I, that part was disappointing. I would have liked to see how he tried to do that. And maybe that's why it wasn't because he figured he didn't do it well or he doesn't want to share. It's not required. But I was hoping to see more of that side of him. Yeah, I was too. You know, as, as much as we got so much Michael during the 10 episodes, we really didn't get a whole lot of personal life Michael right. outside of the brief touch on the gambling yeah, um, and he likes and, you know, to we golf. Got his, we, we got knew his it. dad's a little bit of his relationship with his dad, which I didn't know they were as close as they right. were. Me neither. Um, I thought that was interesting, but you know, yeah, it's tough. As as you said, it's tough to judge him on you know maybe not wanting to have you know too much of a focus on the family and in your private life, both you know at the time when you were a player and then now in hindsight. Um, but you know, there's that's just kind of the the questions you ask on what story are we telling with the documentary we didn't get the whole picture right um it would have been interesting to have you know this same 10-part documentary done that michael jordan didn't have final say right on right. everything that went into it. that would have did been an think, interesting 10 hours did you think i was surprised at the lack of any charles oakley interview weren't you because isn't that his guy i didn't even think of that yeah that was I mean, I th- think they say that's his, you know, right. best friend that played. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't even really thought of that. That um, they say that is his best friend from the NBA. So that is. Surprising. And who's George? You know, George, the white guy that gets the label in the bullet. You know, in the every screen time, it says George, blah blah blah, personal manager and best friend. He was. He, my, I mean, again, this is the crazy part of kind of Michael's social life and his relationships. It's, he was. He met Michael as a driver. He was Michael's oh. driver. He got to Chicago. He was a limo driver, and I think, I, I think they talked about in the documentary that Michael had gotten to Chicago and and a car was supposed to pick him up and didn't, and he was at the airport and it happened just by accident. He gave Michael a ride and was with him ever since. Oh Jesus! Well, I'm glad you know that story. I mean, I just didn't miss it. But it is interesting. I mean, you know, it makes me think some of the relationship stuff that wasn't hit on with like. Oakley and it makes me a little bit of some of the stuff Charles Barkley has talked about yeah. over the last few years of Barkley and MJ were really close and, and now, they, now yeah, they don't even they're speak. not because Michael because Charles said you know he's got a huge platform he's kind of the main you know NBA commentator on TNT and he said at one point that Michael's problems as an owner in Charlotte are because he just hires his boys a bunch of yes men um and you know that Michael just surrounds himself with people that are in awe of Michael and don't question Michael. And, and Charles has no problem saying right. what he thinks, which is why I love him. Right. Um, and Michael, you know, didn't appreciate that. And and you know, Charles, it would have been interesting too if we could get you know some of the people really being you know just truly honest. That you know, again, I think people revere Michael so much that they're going to hold back a little bit on saying what they really think at most times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you, man. Any last things on it before we let you go? Well, the one thing I just thought of that I thought was so, I don't know if 
ironic is the word, but it was just such a weird twist in the documentary of, you know, the a big part of the early episodes was Michael's hatred for Isaiah. Yeah. Um, and how that played out. And then to get to the end where it's 98 and it's his last game, last shot, and Isaiah's calling the game. Yes, I noticed that. You're right. And it was just, it was almost like a poetic kind of thing that obviously wasn't like scripted, but I didn't even really think of it in watching the documentary. I thought of it last night. ESPN showed that game six from 98, and I watched the fourth quarter, and Isaiah, in the post game after they'd won, had the most amazing things to say about Michael. Really? Um, about. You know, what he's done for basketball, what he means for basketball, how he's an amazing person and not just a great basketball player. And it made me sad when Does I was Michael watching just that last shit night. On him? Yeah. Of yeah. hearing Isaiah say all those things and thinking to how Michael portrayed Isaiah in this documentary. Um, but again, you know, Michael, he um, he's not going to let a grudge go. It doesn't we seem saw that like with it. his Hall of Fame speech a few years ago. Right. He thanked everybody that ever disrespected him. Right. Um, you know, it's it, whether or not it makes him happy and successful in other walks of life, I don't know. I can't comment on that. It definitely, you know, drove him as a basketball player. Um, but I think for anybody to aspire to have that, to live like that, I think is is probably missing the point would be my kind of final <laughs> right. takeaway. I don't think you comment. can live in a constant anger and revenge mode unless you are the greatest at something on earth. Then you can. Right. That might be the barrier of entry to that positioning. It could be. <laughs> Content reminder. The opinions expressed on today's episode are those of the hosts and guests alone and should not be viewed as reflective of the opinions of the institutions or employers of the hosts and guests.